Welcome, everyone, to a brand new episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. Thank you all for listening. And as usual, um, if you join us from our mailing list, thank you, thank you, thank you for that. Once again, we are trying to really prioritize that. So if you aren't already, head over to our website, www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com to sign up for our mailing list. And once again, as always, this podcast is not intended as medical advice. It's just for knowledge and information. And with that, let's get into the episode. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. Welcome, everyone, to a brand new episode. And if you've been listening to our podcast for a while, then you know we've been uh, trying to target every aspect of preventive medicine. And what we haven't had yet is someone to talk about one of the most important organs or things in our body, which is the brain. So today with us, we have Dr. Tommy Wood. And he's a pretty interesting guy, if you would like his LinkedIn or whatnot. So he got his bachelor's from Cambridge. Um, got a medical degree equivalent from Oxford. I don't know exactly what they call it. We'll have him expand on that a little bit um, from Oxford um, and then got his PhD in physiology and neuroscience from the University of Oslo. And then he came all the way to the States to Washington and is now a research faculty at the University of Washington in the Department of Pediatrics. His research primarily focuses on the resilience of the brain, which is what we're talking about today. And in the case of unfortunate events, also in treating brain injuries, uh, also in the pediatric population. He's also extremely outspoken on nutrition and exercise as modalities to improve our health and also serves as the president of the Physicians for Ancestral Health, um, where their aim is to combine kind of evidence-based newer therapies and all the things that we have in modern medicine with what our ancestors used, the power of community, sleep, stress management, sense of meaning in life, and all those basic things. So without other way, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, definitely. We are pretty excited to speak to you today about the brain because we haven't had that today. Well, I mean, the brain is pretty important, obviously. And um, what's nice about it is the more we understand about the brain and the less we try and separate the brain from the rest of the body, which has been sort of what's happened historically uh, in medicine and, and science and neuroscience that the brain is sort of treated as this standalone entity but of course the brain and the body are intimately connected and the things that are good for the body are also good for the brain which also makes our lives a little easier when we're trying to uh, prevent you know long-term chronic diseases definitely i told the listeners a little bit about you but is there anything else that you really want to highlight about yourself uh no that's uh that's it pretty much uh, the one of sort of the additional things that i've done largely at the side of my academic career is working with adult disease populations and um, elite performers, you know, largely athletes. So I still uh, do a lot of work with Formula One drivers, so elite motorsports, looking at lifestyle and other environmental factors to maximize health and performance um, and work with various athletic groups and then also look at um, brain injury and risk across the lifespan. So we're then talking like later TBIs and a neurodegeneration, which obviously is is something 
uh, that people are going to be interested in. So I try and integrate all of these different factors across essentially the entire lifespan. So even though I'm technically in pediatrics, and that's where a lot of my research is, um, I try and, you know, I spend a lot of time focusing on later life as well. No, definitely. That's really interesting. And uh, that also helps us helps you answer the question, which is kind of what preventive medicine means to you, because the idea we have behind this question is we want to find different perspectives. Obviously, when you think of preventive medicine, the obvious definition is just like to prevent disease, right? But everyone has a different definition, especially coming from your background, where you look at it in the pediatric sense, you look at it in the athlete sense, the older sense, whatever it is, what does preventive medicine mean to you? Sure. So you, you mentioned ancestral health along the way, and you mentioned uh, preventive medicine and i think i'm have been involved in various different aspects of these alternative medicines we almost still call them and that would include integrative medicine functional medicine um preventative medicine um and in reality i think even though proponents of those different fields as they are would would say that they're different and their one is best um, I don't really agree. I think the underlying principles are the same across all of those, which is that there are key fundamental factors um, that are necessary for human health. Um, and they are sleep and circadian rhythm management, stress management, movement, um, high quality nutritious food, and some kind of social connection and meaning. And that really underpins essentially all of those. And those are the things that you know, we can do if we put them in place are going to uh, hopefully prevent chronic disease or if you know at some we're putting them in place after disease processes have started we can hopefully either slow or maybe even reverse some of those processes so that's that's what preventative medicine means to me no, definitely. I like how you mentioned the uh, all those different types of quote unquote alternative medicines where you have like functional medicine, integrative medicine, and they're all kind of rehashing the wheel, the same thing, but they all have like their slightly different emphasis. And personally, I think if all these physicians just kind of um, get together and look at these principles that you're talking about, I think it could do a lot more good because now you have people that are like confused. What is the difference between my primary care physician Someone who's practicing preventive medicine, integrative medicine, functional medicine. What is the difference? Who should I listen to? What's going on? So, can definitely sympathize with you there. Yeah, but I, I oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so I'm I one of the founders of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine in the UK, and it's interesting because lifestyle medicine is obviously largely well, largely focuses on diet, but then it was bringing in some of these other factors I mentioned as well. But they're often practitioners of lifestyle medicine are directly antagonistic to those who say that they practice functional medicine and largely because people who practice functional medicine may use well they might use some diagnostic tests most of which are complete nonsense so obviously we should you know that's its own thing but they might use some dietary supplements or recommend some some multivitamins or something like that and i think you know if that's the point of contention it really makes it much harder for the the individual, for the patient, because the core underlying principles, those are the most important things. And those are absolutely similar across all of these. So yeah, I think the those arguments between the different groups are just making it harder for the patient and, and also stopping us sort of progressing and integrating all of these things into, you know, day-to-day -day allopathic, you know, medical care, which is what essentially we would want to do. 100%. And I don't want to dive too much into like the integrative functional medicine because I think we could talk forever, especially about like those tests that are, mm. I don't know what type of things they're testing over there, but not evidence-based. Let's leave it at that. Yeah. 
Um, I want to pivot into the brain and brain injury. So kind of at first, how did you become interested in that? Because it's not something that everyone just wakes up and being like, oh, I really want to study the brain. So how did you become interested in the brain, brain injury, and end up making neonatal brain injury your topic of focus for research? Yeah, so I kind of fell into being a neuroscientist almost. Um, and when I was in medical school, my first sort of exposure to the complexity of, of things that can affect the nervous system was in this sort of, um, it, was, it was a largely informal side project um, doing kind of a scoping review of the things associated with multiple sclerosis um, and looking at uh, genetics, environmental factors, dietary factors, uh, chronic infections, some environmental exposures, like all these things can feed into somebody's risk and then progression of multiple sclerosis. And this was something that I did because a family member of mine was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Um, and then when I finished uh, my, my medical degree, I, I was working as a junior doctor in central London and then got an offer to move to Oslo to do a PhD with somebody, uh, uh, Professor Mariana Torreson, who I'd done some, un I'd, I'd been an undergrad in her lab, um, you know, a few years before. And then her research focuses on neonatal brain injury. Um, so kind of these different parts came together. And then in my own interest, I'd spent a lot of time working with athletes and then you know obviously concussions becoming a a, a big deal and increasing coming co coming to sort of uh into the public's consciousness about the importance of them so obviously it's a big thing now in the nfl rugby in the uk soccer uh particularly in you know young, uh, younger people um and so like all these different bits start to come together and I, I realized that i've essentially created my own path in terms of trying to understand the brain development and injury across the entire lifespan. So that's kind of where I've ended up focusing my career. Definitely. And I think a lot of times it does come from personal experience. The next thing you know, you meet something else, another opportunity pops up and you're like, huh, this seems interesting just because of my personal experience. Next thing you know, you're diving deep into it and that ends up becoming your life. I think oftentimes uh, that's actually how it was for uh, Jason and I. Both of us kind of started this podcast because both of us lost a lot of weight, figured out that, oh, there's a little bit more to life. We feel a lot better now. And then now we have this podcast. We're trying to do the same thing for other people, help them be prepared for life. Mm. Um, I want to have you expand a little bit on brain injury, because when people think of brain injury, typically they think of concussions, as you mentioned, whether it's related to sports or just any other injury, but um, kind of what is brain injury and what are the different types? Yeah, it's it's a good question. And it's, it's funny, again, because everybody who studies brain injury, typically um, neuroscience is also highly siloed. So, you know, one person will study stroke and one study will, one person will study TBI. And one, one person will study Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease. And TBI, real quick, is traumatic brain injury. Traumatic so brain injury. Brain injury is relative of trauma. Yeah. So from and the, the and TBI can can range from like mild TBI, which is essentially a concussion, all the way through to like massive traumatic uh, injuries. And <clears throat> so the fields tend to be siloed, and the the main neonatal brain injury that I study. Uh, is essentially a type of stroke, um, but it's a, a systemic hypoxia or asphyxia. Um, and it often comes with uh, some kind of low blood pressure. Um, it's low blood flow going to the brain and low oxygen. Um, and that affects the whole brain. And this often happens because something happens around childbirth such that, you know, the baby gets stuck or there's some kind of problem with progressing. And then we there's this... Um, a phenomenon called perinatal asphyxia. This is basically asphyxia during birth.
birth that then affects the brain. And that is it's essentially very similar to, to a whole a stroke of the whole brain. Um, and in brain injury, um, there's essentially um, two or three different mechanisms that occur, but then what happens downstream is often very similar. So if you have a, a stroke, you have a blood or an ischemic stroke, we call it. So blood flow being cut off to the brain, that's the more common type of stroke that people might think of because some kind of clot. Um, you have reduced blood flow and oxygen to the brain. And that essentially means that those cells can't make energy. They're not getting oxygen. Uh, they're not getting glucose. Um, and so it's a, a problem with energy supply. Um, sometimes you can have a direct a direct sort of physical injury, right? That's what happens with a concussion. Um, and that, so a direct physical impact against the cells. Um, when your brain is shifting around inside your skull, there are, there are also some shearing forces. So like as the cells kind of like rub against each other, you've changed the signals that go to those cells and that can result in an injury response. You can also get an injury because of a systemic inflammatory injury. And so this is something that's very common in preterm babies and preterm brain injury, which is another phenomenon I study. And it's basically you get some large inflammatory response and it could be due to it, like probably due to an infection or something like that. And then that can also directly affect the brain. And then these things interact. So if you have some kind of inflammatory exposure, some infection going on, and then you have uh, some kind of stroke, they will interact and will probably result in a bigger injury. And so downstream, what essentially you're seeing um, in, in all of these injuries is a mismatch between the amount of energy that is available and the amount of energy that can be you know, is is needed or some kind of inability to produce enough energy because your mitochondria get injured. And this is like the common downstream pathway of most brain injuries is some kind of problem either with energy supply or energy production. And then those cells in the brain, the neurons aren't able to sustain their normal functions. And then that results in cell death or, or, other, or other responses. Definitely. And I think one of the important aspects also to note there is that unlike other parts of the body, um, neurons are cells that can't necessarily regenerate as well. Like, for example, if you get a cut on your skin, you're probably going to heal up pretty quickly because our skin regenerates really fast. Whereas neurons either don't regenerate or come back really slowly. So it kind of behooves us to try to find ways to prevent these as much as possible. And obviously, it's going to be difficult to prevent things like some traumatic brain injuries, or let's say you are playing football and you get a head on head hit it's going to be a little bit difficult to prevent it just because of the environment um but in general are there any ways to prevent some of the things that you're talking about yeah it's so if, uh, particularly if well so let's if we think about um the the neonatal brain injuries to start with um it, it depends on uh it depends on the brain injury so if it's if you're born prematurely you have an increased risk of um, changes in long-term neurodevelopment. And there are risk factors for, for preterm brain injury that um, are quite societal. So in the US, black women are more likely to have premature babies. And it seems to be intimately tied to systemic stresses, systemic racism, how that changes physiology and then changes uh, birth weight or when babies are born. So, the, so like those... That's there's this huge societal problem that we're just starting to reckon with. It's incredibly important. Um, if we think about 
that sort of neonatal, that big stroke, that perinatal asphyxia I talked about, that you know happens with problems during childbirth. Um, and one of the easiest ways to prevent that happening is to have an in-hospital birth. Um, I'm an alternative kind of guy. I'll talk about diet and sleep and stress and stuff, but you should have your baby in a hospital because when things go wrong, devastating things can happen to the brain. Um, then if we're talking about neurodegeneration across the lifespan, yes, like not having a concussion or not having a traumatic brain injury is important. We obviously, so being sensible around the things that that may result in that is, is worth considering. And then uh, as we go into things like age-related cognitive decline, dementia, Parkinson's disease, they seem to be intimately con connected to whole body metabolic health and sort of other environmental factors. So we know that if you have uh, pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes, that's going to increase your risk of Alzheimer's uh, dementia or Parkinson's disease by about two times, roughly. And again, one of the reasons for that is because glucose, large swings in blood, in blood sugar, aren't very good for the brain. And as blood sugar steadily increases, that can, that can actively cause uh, that can actively cause inflammation or some kind of negative response in the brain. So metabolic health is really one of the best ways uh, to ensure or minimize our risk of long-term neurodegeneration. And that's, you know, making sure that we are, you know, we remain active, we have uh, a healthy body composition, um, you know, we eat nourishing foods, you know, all those things contribute to that process. So depending on where you're where you're looking, you know, that you may need a different focus. Uh, but all of these things then stack, stack up over time. So if you're born prematurely, you have an increased risk of type 2 diabetes, you have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. We now think you may be at increased risk of Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. And that's because that process of being born prematurely changes your immune system. It creates this slightly elevated inflammatory response that essentially lasts the entire lifetime. So then once you're exposed to these environmental factors, they can have bigger effects. So, you know, if you want to minimize the amount of um, neurodegeneration in a population, you really need to start looking right at the beginning because it can affect you throughout your entire life. Definitely. I want to take a step back real quick and acknowledge and appreciate the fact that we have people mentioning um, things that can affect health that are outside of like our control, such as like the systemic racism and systemic factors that you mentioned, especially with the black women giving uh, birth to premature babies at a much higher rate. Because when people think of preventive medicine, they don't necessarily think of things like that. They think of, oh, diet, nutrition, stuff like that. They're not thinking about these larger systemic issues that can affect an entire population across a country. And as you said, predispose those babies that might be premature to a whole bunch of other things that they're already at higher risk for. So I really want to acknowledge you bringing that up because I think that's a massive point and I think it's really understated and it's definitely something that we haven't worked on as much and we're definitely starting to. Um, and this isn't something you can necessarily solve at an individual level. Obviously, this is something that requires large systemic change, which is going to take some time. Hopefully, we can get there sooner rather than later. And I also want to mention that um, you mentioned that like you're an alternative kind of guy with the sleep nutrition stuff. I don't even want to call that alternative <laughs> these days, because when you think of alternative medicine these days, it's like way out there. Yeah. Those are more so some of the people that, as you say, maybe giving birth at home. I know that's um, there's a lot of interesting uh, messages about childbirth and pregnancy and all those things in alternative medicine. So I also want to acknowledge 
you saying go to a hospital because <laughs> that is absolutely the place where uh, childbirth should be in case all those complications happen. And then I also wanted to ask you to follow up. You mentioned things like uh, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and a bunch of other neurodegenerative diseases. What are those and how are they different from the brain injuries that you were mentioning previously? Sure. So I see the processes as very as very similar. Um, and, you know, that has its, I think that has benefits for me because I can try and look at a bigger picture. But then, you know, people who are sort of, very deep into the science of one specific type of brain injury may may disagree and that's that, that's fine you know that that's kind of people with different viewpoints can hopefully get us to to the right answer eventually um but the difference in my mind is largely the speed at which it happens so when so alzheimer's disease um or the age we'll call it age-related cognitive decline or age-related dementia because true Alzheimer's disease, as it was originally described, is a very is a very rare genetic uh, early onset familial type of dementia that isn't what most people are calling Alzheimer's disease, uh, but it largely affects uh, memory. So the hippocampus being an important part of the brain for memory, and that part of the brain essentially sort of shrivels up and and, and stops stops working properly and that's where you know people start to see changes in memory and then you can lose executive function you know your ability to sort of think and reason and those kinds of things happen as well in parkinson's disease you have a similar neurodegeneration uh, but it's largely within uh, a part of the brain called the basal ganglia uh, and it affects motor control however um Again, when when we're looking at, say, if we try and model this in a lab, or we're looking at what's happening physically or biochemically, it's largely a problem with mitochondria not functioning properly, not producing enough energy to support those cells. Um, and so why that happens in one area of the brain in one person versus another area of the brain in another, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that, and we don't truly understand that. But the processes, in my mind, are very similar. Um, and again... So if you compare that to a stroke where it's a very sudden change, like no blood flow, you can't make any energy, versus a slow decline in the function of those cells of the mitochondria producing energy, it's very similar. It's just the time course, maybe, that, that, that makes a big difference. I don't know if you're aware, but we also have a lot of content going alongside each episode over on our Instagram page. So if you aren't already following us there, make sure to go do so at PreventPod. We have a lot of content relating to each episode, including waveforms, different quotes that you can share with your friends and help us spread the message of preventive medicine. And with that, let's get back to the show. I actually didn't know that about Alzheimer's disease, where um, the definition was kind of a little bit more strict, but it's like the more sudden onset memory decline and linked to genetics. I didn't know that. I think in medical school, uh, we pretty much just learned that it's just like memory loss up to the point where it starts affecting a person's day-to-day life. Mm. And that's kind of the level at which you say Alzheimer's versus memory related. So that's interesting here. I always learn something from a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's mainly because when you try and sort these different things out, um, you you see that like how, and it, I always really like going back like historically. I feel like older physiological studies, older sort of studies describing a certain disease um, provide us a lot more information than some of the more recent stuff where you have like highly manipulated genetic models in mice and it's really difficult to figure out how that actually relates to humans at all um and and so when alzheimer's disease was initially described it was happening very early 
And it was happening in families, and it was probably due to mutations in like the pre-senilin genes. Um, but that makes up less than 10% of the cases of Alzheimer's disease. Um, but even though they look very similar, they're happening at different ages, and they probably have, you know, have some different underlying uh, underlying causes. If you have those sort of familial early onset Alzheimer's diseases, it's very difficult to know what to do. Um, you know, whether we there's much we can do, we're not sure. But for the, for the the bulk of the other Alzheimer's disease, as we call it, or I would call age related dementia or age related cognitive decline, we know that environment, lifestyle. Um, you know, systemic metabolic health, all these things can, can play a big role. So that's why I try and separate them out because the one that most people are worried about is the one that I think we have the most control over. Definitely. And you already touched on this a little bit, but we talked about when we uh, were talking about traumatic brain injury, a little bit on prevention of those. But when it comes to neurocognitive diseases, um, I guess both for the real Alzheimer's, as I'm going to call it, or the age-related cognitive decline, um, people don't necessarily think of preventing those just because they're like, that'll come with age. There's nothing I can do about it. But we're finding the evidence that there actually is stuff you can do about it. And you already mentioned that you have like uh, dispositions from pre-diabetes and diabetes. Some people are calling uh, Alzheimer's type 3 diabetes even, which I've seen in the literature. And there's always associations between sleep and all these neurocognitive diseases. So what can people do on a daily basis to try to reduce the risk of developing these neurocognitive diseases? So I think, again, the, the, the main things that I mentioned right at the beginning in terms of what does preventative medicine mean to me, all of those seem to be intricately linked to age-related cognitive decline. So you mentioned sleep. Both sleep quantity and sleep quality are important are important um, in the risk of cognitive decline. So that's are you getting on average seven to nine hours of sleep per night? And obviously that does change over time. Your your sleep requirements do decrease a little bit as you get older. Um, but you know that's on average. And then sleep quality. So like, are you waking up all the time? Are you waking up in the middle of the night and not being able to go back to sleep? You know those that's that that's important as well. Um, However, while we're talking about sleep, I think the sleep has become kind of sexy again, which I think is great. Like people are talking about sleep, <laughs> like how important it is. But then we also tend to get fatalistic, right? And so like now you have your sleep trackers and everybody's trying to optimize their sleep. Um, and I've, I think that's potentially problematic because the majority of people who I've worked with, when they start tracking their sleep, they then start worrying about what their sleep tracker is going to tell them about their sleep, and that affects their sleep. Um, so, 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 yeah. When we talk about these risk factors, it's important to not then get stuck in a like a, a death spiral of of catastrophism because you know you're worried that this. So th this happens over time. A few nights of not great sleep for whatever reason is not anything to worry about. You know, this is sort of like patterns that compound over a lifetime. So, like doing the best you can whenever you can do it. That's the important thing. So, so sleep is important. And then um, I think diet is very important as well. So minimizing huge swings in blood sugar. Uh, there's some nice data um, that came from a study of a drug. So this is in type 2 diabetes. They used it to try and improve blood sugar control. And what they saw, and, the, and they looked over two years, so a, a nice long time period. And what they saw was that in the people who had the biggest swings in blood sugar, they had the worst cognitive function at the start of the study. But the better the improvement in swings in blood sugar, the better the improvement in cognitive function. 
So that tells you two things. One, that blood sugar swings are really important. And two, that it's reversible. That, you know, over time, these things can improve. And so both of those messages, I think, are important. So minimizing the intake of refined carbohydrates or things that can cause big swings in blood sugar. And while we, while we mention that, it's really important to mention that what um, causes a big spike in blood sugar in one person is very different from another person. It's the one thing that we've really learned in the last 10 years about blood sugar control is that it's almost impossible to predict what, like, I could eat a bowl of pasta and have no change in my blood sugar. You could eat that same bowl of pasta and have a big spike, whereas you could eat, you know, a big slice of cake and have no effect, and I would eat that cake and I would have a big spike. So, like, we we can't really figure that out anymore. Like, people are trying to find ways to predict it. But if, if you're interested in this, then, you know, you can measure your blood sugar, you can think about this stuff. But it's also, you know, a, a simple rule of thumb is to just remove, you know, heavily processed uh, carbohydrate heavy foods that's that's an, that's an option um f- like fat you mentioned oh sorry, sorry go ahead no no you, you can ask that you can ask the follow-up because i was going to move on to something yeah else. i was just going to ask is that in similar to uh the sleep thing where it's like worrying about it is the blood sugar thing something should like people should be worrying about like there's a new trend where people go out there and get like blood sugar monitors so that's just like implanted in their arms so they can have continuous data yeah. is that something people need to do or is it just kind of the simple advice of get rid of those highly processed sugary foods on a consistent basis like once in a while it's like okay enjoy your life but mm. like it shouldn't be meal after meal right no no exactly and and i think again it, it, it's going to depend from person to person so if, if i was just going to give broad advice it would be that you know minimize the intake of highly refined carbohydrates so things full of flour and sugar essentially um you know cakes and cookies and breads and things like that if if they don't form like the core part of your meals um then you've probably done all you need to do um however like some people like to get super super geeky about this and you can get these uh, continuous glucose monitors and they last for about 10 to 14 days and you can they you can watch your blood sugar in real time throughout that entire period However, and, and that can be useful. So I have used that with some people. and I have some seen some people who want to do that benefit from that. Um, however, I don't think you need to do it more than once, right? We eat the same thing again and again and again and again and again. So when people start to have continuous blood glucose monitors implant, like, implanted for weeks on end, I don't see the point in that. Because you know what you want to do is identify certain foods that cause big spikes and then just eat less of those. And that's it. That's all you need to do. Um, so definitely this hyper-focus on more data being better is not useful uh, in my mind. But again, just like broad change, if you minimize the intake of heavily processed foods, that does does the trick for almost everybody. Uh, so that's where I'd focus. Um, so, so fats then are another thing that I think are important, particularly for the brain. Uh, so people um, talk a lot about omega-3 fatty acids, long-chain omega-3 fatty acids. That's stuff that you find in seafood, right? DHA, EPA. Um, you can take it as a supplement. Uh, you don't need a huge amount. Um, but the other side of that is that um, the omega-6s found in vegetable oils and seed oils particularly can compete for uptake into the brain with those other sort of omega-3s. And again, like people get hyper-focused on this, but in my mind, it's just where if you don't have a load of fried foods, then that essentially gets rid of most of the problem. Um, So just improving diet quality essentially solves all these problems for you, and then you don't need to worry about the individual factors. Um, So that's sleep, diet, um, stress, 
is is an interesting one because when you look at um, stress and risk of cognitive decline, it seems to be associated with how much control you have over the situation that is stressful. So they've looked at uh, people at work and they've looked at whether their job is high stress or low stress and whether they have high control or low control. So a high stress job where you don't have any control over the stress is, is associated with an increased risk of dementia. Whereas a high stress job where you have a significant amount of control, so that could be as a doctor, as an executive in a company, as a lawyer, right? It's stressful, but you have a lot of control. That doesn't seem to be as associated with an increased risk of dementia. However, there are plenty of situations in our lives where it's very stressful and we can't control it. So I think that translates across. And I would say that if there are things that are very stressful to you, that in the moment or in the situation, you don't have much control, finding ways to remove those stresses long term is going uh, to potentially uh, be beneficial. Uh, Or building in sort of resilience factors against stress, so mindfulness, meditation, prayer, um, exercise, like all of those things can help build a buffer. Um, Then probably one of the the last and most important things is um, social connection and what I call brain connection. So like to use connection as an umbrella term. So, you know, people who are um, socially isolated or who feel lonely are at increased risk of dementia. Um, And part of it is just, you know, we are social beings and we need this interaction to tell our brains that they should be functional, right? It's an important input into the system. Just like um, if you go to the gym and you build up your muscles, you know, if you don't use those muscles anymore, you stop going to the gym, then they'll get smaller. And the brain is the same. If you don't use it, you will lose it, essentially. So part of that is interacting with others. That's part of who we are as humans. And another part is skill development and acquisition. Um, and what normally happens over a lifetime is that we do all the things that are like skill development, motor development very early in life. And then we specialize over our lives. And we just do the same thing again and again and again. And it for our brains, it's not difficult to do. Like once you're really good at driving, it just happens automatically. Most of the things you do in your job just happen automatically. Right. So they don't require significant cognitive input. So one of the most important things that I think, and you can pick this up from different bits of the literature, is that, well, so retiring later seems to be protective because, again, it's, it's, it's more ongoing stimulus, depending on what you do when you retire. And then skill development and doing things that you're bad at is really important because it's hard for the brain and it works hard to overcome that. So it could be a language. It could be dance. It could be a movement skill. Um, it could be... Um, teaching others seems to be uh, protective as well. But basically, doing things that you're not very good at and getting better at them, see, you know, music, uh, playing an instrument, a re- really good one as well. Um, but then the, the, the other side of that is that once you get good at it, you have to do something else because you need this continuous stimulus. And most adults, we don't like being bad at stuff, right? <laughs> other people seeing us suck at something really hurts. Like, it's really bad. We don't like it. But... One of the most important things, I think, for long-term brain health is fighting that feeling and just accepting that you're going to be bad at something and you're going to get better at it and like, and it's going to be good for your brain and you're going to enjoy that process. So that's the final thing that I think is really crucial um, to long-term brain health. 
Definitely. I love everything you said. And I want to emphasize that um, people think it's super hard to start a new skill when you get older, especially because of the fear of being judged and like just um, afraid of sucking at something. And uh, with my parents as well, I'm trying to be like, yo, you guys need to like figure out a new skill. Just keep something, keep yourself occupied. Otherwise, exactly. You're going to cognitively decline. And that's not something I want to see personally. So uh, I can agree with you there right on that. And I also want to ask you, you mentioned genetic testing previously, and there's also a lot of somewhat silly, somewhat not necessarily evidence-based, maybe yet ideas out there about um, cognitive decline, neurodegenerative diseases. One of those is kind of the infamous ApoE4 gene. We're getting a little bit into the weeds here. Um, Are there any actual solid evidence-based recommendations out there for what people can actively do? Like, should they get genetic tested? Is there anything they need to worry about? Or is it just focused on everything you were just talking about? Yeah, it's a great question. And actually, when you look at most of the genes that get tested in direct-to-consumer genetic testing, they're essentially useless for making any kind of important decisions about your health, despite what people will will tell you. So they'll say, we'll do this genetic test, and it'll tell you what foods you can eat. You can't do that, right? Um, it, we can't do that yet. Maybe one day we'll be able to do that. For um, cognitive decline, for dementia, your APOE genotype and there are three, uh, APOE 2, 3, and 4, and you can have one or two copies of any of those in combination. You have two copies of your APOE gene. Your, if you have, um, so your APOE status predicts about 5% of your Alzheimer's disease risk. And so if you have one copy of APOE 4, it increases your risk by maybe two or three to six to 10 times, something like that, So it, like, which sounds scary. And then if you have two copies, it's, it's maybe like, three to 20 x you know times your risk which 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 can be big however like i said that's actually a very small proportion of uh your overall risk and those who have apoe4 are in the minority of people who have dementia or alzheimer's disease so i think the majority of the risk comes from those things that we already talked about and yes you may have a small genetic modifier but whether, like knowing that, probably doesn't help you very much, right? There's a, def- a definite possibility where you find out that you're what we call an ApoE4 homozygote. You have two copies of ApoE4, and then you're going to continuously stress about the fact that you're going to get uh, dementia, and the stress is a bigger, a, a bigger factor than the genotype, right? So, so I think we need to be really careful about how we discuss risk because we can create additional stresses that make a bigger effect than um, the, that genotype itself. And actually, this is quite well described that you can me- you can get bigger effects on somebody's health or physiology by telling them something about their genetics, even if it's not true, than the genetics themselves. So there was a really nice study. It was one of my favorite studies where they they took people and they made them run on a treadmill I think it was a 30-minute treadmill test. And then afterwards, they randomized them to tell them, you have a good gene for endurance exercise performance, or you have a bad gene for endurance exercise performance. But none of it was true. They were randomized. So they, so, right, so they made sure that it was an even split between whether that information was true or not. And then those who were told that they had a bad gene, when they, re- when they repeated the test, they got worse at the exercise, even though for half of those, it wasn't true right you're just telling somebody they're bad at something because of their genetics they will get worse even if that's not true so the effect of knowing that has an effect on your physiology that's greater than the effect of the gene itself 
Um, so when we when we when we talk about these things and we talk about risk, we can create um, these mental processes that affect our physiology. So that's why I think it's really important in, in the ways that we talk uh, about risk. So in general, I'm I'm not a big fan of genetic testing because I don't think most of the information isn't useful and it can create stresses that you know have a bigger effect than, than the knowledge itself i am right there with you and i am i'm always annoyed when there's people that harp so hard on like just a genetic test like there's an entire podcast episode that you might listen to that's about getting your genes tested for apoe4 because you can prevent alzheimer's disease and all it does is it creates anxiety and stress around that topic which as you said does a lot worse for that person than actually having that gene and having the possibility of that gene and I think that's the difference between what we try to do on this podcast and maybe some others out there where we're not there to like optimize health. Obviously, that would be great. We're here to optimize life. So whatever you can do, however much information you need to do that is what we're there for. If something like figuring out if you have the APOE4 gene makes you worse off, then don't do it because it's going to add to your stress. It's going to change a lot about your day. Maybe it's just going to not necessarily be the best for you. So that's something we wouldn't recommend. I absolutely love how you mentioned a lot of that. It's worth bearing in mind as well that when you, depending on the population, APOE4 can have either a neutral or a, a beneficial effect on cognitive decline. So there's a study they looked at the Bolivian semenay, so it's hunter gatherers in Bolivia. In that group, they have quite a significant infectious burden uh, with parasite infection, and if you had a high infectious burden and you had APOE4, it protected you from cognitive decline. Uh, they've also done similar studies in African hunter-gatherer tribes, and they found no effect of APOE4 on cognitive decline. So it's it's like it's context dependent, and it's not deterministic. So in general, I don't think it's particularly uh, in, uh, useful information to have. While we're on the topic, what do you think of genetic testing for other things like figuring out your diet and like other ways you should live? Is there any evidence to that? Should anyone do that? No, it's all complete garbage. Um, to be honest, um, and and there so you I, go. That's, no, that's perfect. <laughs> that's all you need to say. Um, yeah, I, we we can go into why, but basically, it's garbage. Yeah, agreed. And let's get into a little bit more of a funny slash interesting type question. And I don't know how many uh, Elon Musk fans there are out there, but as of right now, interventions for things like TBI, neurocognitive diseases aren't necessarily the best. And I'm going into a physical medicine rehab, which deals a lot with this. So. Um, obviously it would be excellent to have a great treatment for this, but right now you kind of just do what you can. So when it comes to things like Neuralink and maybe in the future, what do you think about technologies like those? Do those look appealing to you? Are they kind of scary? What are your thoughts on that? So, I mean, to be honest, it's just, I mean, it's entertainment, right? That's essentially <laughs> what it is at this point. I mean, we are nowhere near being able to directly intersect our brains with, with, any kind of computer type system and right there's some some cool stuff in terms of like uh regaining motor control with exoskeletons in people who have who are like paralyzed right mm -hmm. i think slowly we're, we're starting to get into you know with like like uh complex prostheses and stuff and i think that's super cool and and, and super important um however like a point where you can like upload and download your entire brain <laughs> i mean it's just entertainment like and and it gets Elon Musk uh, good publicity, and that's important for his business. And I get it, right? What what are we talking? Fifty to a hundred years, maybe. Um, however, you know when I think about you know we we spend all our time 
focusing on these like massive blockbuster drugs or block you know technological advances you know when in 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 reality the vast majority of chronic disease can be uh prevented and managed with lifestyle factors the majority of which are free um and you know the majority of the diseases also affect those who are the most disadvantaged in society while we spend all our research dollars on neuralink that seems insane to me like <laughs> like like why would you like I, I know how to prevent type 2 diabetes and it doesn't cost anything but it does require a healthcare system that supports those who are most disadvantaged and like helps change their environments so like it's interesting of course i'm a scientist at heart I, I find this stuff interesting but i also find it infuriating because we know what to do but nobody is doing it particularly for those where a lot of this stuff is out of out of their control and those are the people who need our help the most definitely personally i'm relatively interested in like the futuristic type stuff just because it's really interesting for the nerd in me but i'm right there with you on the frustration where um our funding and research dollars and all the money going into these things seems to be like all the way into this futuristic stuff and no one's really focusing on the stuff that we already know because if we put a bunch of money into this then obviously we can fix a lot of stuff similar to what you said about like the systemic problems for premature babies instead of putting money into Neuralink which maybe will be around in 100 years how about we shift a whole bunch of that money to this problem and then we can solve and make a lot of other people's lives better so Agreed. that's kind of where I stand in that but um, yeah that's a topic for another podcast just futuristic <laughs> tech I guess I don't know how much of that has to do with preventive medicine right now <laughs> No, I mean it, it. It doesn't really. And again, it's um, all of these things are trying to are trying to solve problems like right at the end of the pipe, right? If you're trying to create Neuralink to prevent, like, or to like overcome the problems of Alzheimer's disease or dementias, right? I know how to do that, and I can do it for free, right? I don't need Neuralink to solve this problem when when you know it's already <laughs> happened. Um, so yeah, again. It's super cool, super interesting, but at this point, it's just it's entertainment rather than like real science. Definitely, I think there's a lot of value in this entire episode. And as we're starting to wrap up, we always like to ask our guests the uh, same ending question. That's kind of, let's say you go to a Starbucks. Um, I'm assuming you're close to Seattle, so maybe the original Starbucks. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's, that's that? not too, that's not too far from here. Although the, yeah, the line so... is pretty far out the door. So although I've, okay, been a, so... I've been a couple of times because it's. Fun. <laughs> So let's say you're at the original Starbucks and maybe it's a two minute wait instead of like that long line and someone recognizes you and you're like, hey, Dr. Wood, um, how do I get healthy? What do you tell them in the two minutes that you're waiting for your coffee? Sure. So so I would I would tell somebody that there are just uh, four or five critical things to human health and they are sleep, stress management, um, good nutrition, uh, movement, and like social connection and social interaction. Um, and for them, if they can figure out what's the lowest hanging fruit, what's the thing that they can actually change and build in, and they can focus on that, then that's going to be the start to them getting healthy because these things also compound over time. Like We know if people move more, they feel better, they start to do other things that also support their health. So that would so obviously there's going to be a personalized element, but it's going to be within those things, what sounds like low-hanging fruit to you, what's something you can start to do like tomorrow and start to build a habit, focus on that. And then that's sort of that's going to be your 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 key to getting into it. 
100%. I think there's so much good information in this episode. Uh, typically, when I create these episodes, I create like these waveforms and quotes from this. It's going to be difficult for me to find those little nuggets because just the whole thing is just so much value in it. So thank you for coming on. We really appreciate your time and uh, we hope the listeners can enjoy it as well. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This has been great. Absolutely. Take care. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.